Welcome back to episode six of the Cloak and Dagger podcast, the final episode. Uh, my name is Patrick, and I am joined as ever with my co-host Will. Hi, Will. Hey guys, you all right? How Patrick? Hey, hi Patrick. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say hi. I'm just saying how. I can't get the right words out. Well, that's that's the historian in you. You don't say hi. You say how. You're interested. You're already <laughs> interested in what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, we're on our sixth and final episode for this season. We will be doing, we will be back and doing another season after this. Um, probably around about six weeks after we'll be back. So there will be more Assassin Tales to hear about. Recommissioned. Yes, recommissioned. The commissioning body has recommissioned us. The higher ups have let us, you know, given us another season. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've really enjoyed this. If you, I, I assume you've enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't, uh, I mean, I whilst I do care what people out there are thinking, I'm just really enjoying talking about history with you. So it's what we do anyway, so why not do it for an audience? Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, hopefully hopefully people aren't getting too bored with us. Um, but we've jumped around in time, which is something we really wanted to do and make sure that we, you know, went to all over the world, lots of different times in history um, to really get a broad spectrum of assassins because um actually i've whenever i've spoken to people about this i've always said you know at any point in history all over the world there are always people trying to kill each other so you can find a <laughs> assassination story wherever you look it's really not that hard you know if we picked something more specific um you're kind of limited but literally everywhere they're, all, they're always trying to kill each other there's always someone trying to kill someone else yeah it's so true human nature eh can't yeah, get away yeah. from it human <laughs> Um, so, without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Okay, so for today's episode, we've actually decided to kind of uh, bookend the series. So obviously in the first episode, we were talking about the Assassins of Masayef, which were um, inspired by uh, the Assassin's Creed game, the first Assassin's Creed game. So we thought it would be kind of fun um, to look at another... Uh, assassination in one of those games this one takes place in assassin's creed 2 which a lot of people say is their favorite game and might be my favorite game as well it's so good it's it's very very good but this one takes place in renaissance era florence so very different from the first game um and that's where we're looking today and florence at this time is just the sort of epitome of a of a, a renaissance era city they are really big into the new ideas or well i suppose old ideas because the renaissance is all about rediscovering the classical ideas of sort of uh, ancient rome so they're really starting to look into their past and i suppose i suppose you know it's kind of different from looking at the world in a very christian theological way they start looking at sort of more humanist ideas um lot, and it's all kind of brought into a lot of art um, and lots of writing and really interesting stuff. And Florence in particular is uh, the sort of epicenter of what's going on, especially at this time. And this is happening, taking place in the 15th century. Florence at this time um, was ruled over by a council called the Signoria. Um, and it was a sort of a governing body of nine men. But they were actually, and it's kind of democratic, and they were chosen every two months, which is a pretty every ridiculous... Every two months? Every two months. So it's a pretty... Uh, weird way of governing and seems quite chaotic and different um but it is a how... kind of democracy right how on earth do you get anything done in two months before you're like up for re-election again surely that'd be it's, impossible 
it's sort of a bit mad and it's it, it and it's i mean you know it is the same kind of group of people so although it is a, a vague democracy you had to be uh, a member one of the uh, a member of one of the very influential guilds um you had to be rich and you had to be well connected and then your name oh, okay. uh, could be pulled out of a lottery that was picked every two months and so it wasn't even you know, you didn't even cast your votes. Um, it was just a kind of random pool, and those people were chosen. And if you know, if you weren't that interested in doing it, all you had to do is wait two months, and you, you're out of it. So it's not exactly, you know, you're not you're not in there for for good. Um, and it is kind oh, of so it's not really democratic, but it is kind of maybe a bit fair. However, I say it's a I say it's a lottery. In reality, most of the lotteries were predetermined, and it was very much controlled by the wealthy and influential families in Florence. So it's not really oh, okay. democratic or you know fair in any way. Really, it's kind of maybe a bit of theatre just to seem like it's it's the the city is run by the people when actually it's just run by the influential families. Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Thinking about like a city without like part of a country. So Florence being just in charge of itself, you know, well, and the rich governing it. You know, of course, the rich were governing it. Like it's like the bankers today. If the city of London did that, the bankers would be in charge. You know, not it would politics. be very much like if the bankers, if the, if the bankers did uh, rule London, which, you know, maybe maybe they do a oh, little. Maybe they do. Um, <laughs> do, 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 yeah. do, do, do. But I mean, at this time, they were uh, city states. So although Italy was divided up, um, Florence in particular would have had quite a lot of control over the surrounding regions. So the other smaller towns nearby, whilst previously they would have been. Um, sort of rival merchant cities now kind of fall under the control. It's kind of sort of like oh. influence as opposed to hard borders. Um, so it's kind of just which cities uh, exert the most financial control. And in Florence, uh, the money is held primarily with the largest uh, banking family in the region, the Medici family, who are fabulously wealthy bankers at this time, especially at the time we're looking at. So the Medici family, uh, they originally were traders in wool, actually. That's how, kind of how they made their money to begin with, which is an interesting thing. Because as oh. far as I'm aware, wool at this time would have been primarily coming from Britain. It wasn't really uh, Italian wool, so they would have been traders in wool um, and bringing in this very, probably quite a prized commodity for Italy at that time. Because um, obviously it has to be transferred quite a, quite a long way all the way from England. Not huge distance by you know, um, Silk Road standards and that sort of thing, but still fairly hefty. And the Medicis were kind of in control of this trade. But after some time, they sort of switched their focus to banking, which, as anyone nowadays would probably be aware, is a far <laughs> more lucrative uh, venture. And it, it's kind of in this time where banks are really kind of trying to take hold, especially modern modern day banks. Um, I'm sure you're jumping at the bit to tell me that actually it was the Templars who were the first ones to kind of set up banks. How do you know? Yeah, no, yeah, the, no, it's all good. No, they were the first like banks that you would sort of see today as like the that where they started. But uh, yeah, a whole century before that, the Templars, mm. the Knights Templar, were the first bankers in Europe. Um, but that was all wrapped up in the Crusades, and I could talk about it for Britain, and maybe I should on another podcast, but not right now. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you've done a dissertation on it, so <laughs> you've already talked two, about it a lot. Two, two dissertations. Jeez. <laughs> um, so yeah, so yeah, so it's the kind of it's now moving over to these very rich, wealthy families, and particularly in Italy, you have lots of this. I mean, Italy itself is a kind of almost at a crossroads between uh, the East and the West. Um, Venice in particular is kind of seen as one of the kind of gateways 
um, from Western society into Eastern trade. So there's a lot of stuff coming through. So maybe it is kind of the Medici family, you know, channeling uh, English and British wool to the to the East. And that's where they can really start making money. But it is the banking industry where they start making their, I was going to say millions, probably millions of uh Ducats, or is it Florence? Um, I mean, that's Florence. from Florence, isn't it? Florence. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. It'll be Florence from Florence and Ducats from uh, from Rome. So there's kind of lots of, and it's it, actually these sort of currencies are kind of um, starting up now. And the idea of a bank and about having um, your credit and extending credit to different people for different investments. It's kind of this is where essentially kind of capitalism is kind of being set up and built. Um, yeah. And if there's anything I know about capitalism, is that it kind of encourages monopolies, and that is what the Medici's were because they were a powerhouse in Florence. They were real. At this time, so it kind of started. They were around to be uh, for a few centuries before, but in around about 1434, Cosimo de' Medici, who was kind of considered the, uh, the 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 first really powerful Medici. He comes back. He actually comes back from exile and starts working more in banking. And he's the sort of start of the Medici power in, or the real Medici power, in Florence. So I actually looked into just how wealthy the Medici's are, um, and it's interesting. Forbes did a uh, a list of the richest people of all time. So oh, yeah. looking back um, across the years to the, to the wealthiest people, and you know the very wealthiest people, it's incalculable because they are you know, emperors who own yeah. most of the world and they just, they almost didn't have a, a, an upper limit for how much money they had because it could they could just do anything. But mm. the Medicis are referred to as the 17th richest people of all time. So that's the entire Medici banking family. That's really quite high. It's really high. It's estimated a, a sort of net worth of about $129 billion in today's money, Whoa. which is a lot of fucking money. What, although what's, what I did find really interesting is that still doesn't come close. I mean, it's a, it's a hint at capitalism, but that's still less than some of the richest Americans of all time in the really wealthy people. Like so Rockefeller. Rockefeller, yeah, yeah. Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, Henry Ford, Carnegie. All of those guys were, more, were, were richer. Really? Bill Gates... So today, Bill Gates is richer than that. So Jeff Bezos would also be richer than that. Um, Ridiculous. And then another modern one, Gaddafi, would have also been richer than that, who's also oh, one of the wealthiest well, people. <laughs> fair enough. So yeah, so very, very wealthy um, for their time. Okay, interesting. Is it that the Medicis were... Are they... Well, this might be the wrong thing, and maybe I'm just being a bit... Uh, well, I don't know what I'm being. But um, were the Medicis a bit like a mafia? I mean... Or is that that's a bit not far? how they were seen, but honestly, yeah, kind of, because they're not. Really, okay. That's what's interesting about them. They're not. I mean, they would have been in power. Most of their members would have been a few. Well, maybe quite often in the signoria. Um, you know, they just happen to come up in that lottery pool so often. But yeah. they're still not. They're not actually rulers at this time. They're not direct rulers. They are just a massive influence. And so, yeah, they kind of are like a mafia because they would okay. have got rid of people they don't <laughs> like. They would have been in control. I guess the difference would be is they are loved by the people, especially the Medicis. I mean, lots of the families would have been very liked. But one of the reasons they get they get so much love is because they are patrons. It, it's Patronage at this time is in like full swing and they are patronizing. Patron yeah, patronizing. Is, is that yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah not, I think that's so. Not being like talking down to someone. No, that's patronizing, which is what I've just been right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Sorry, but yeah, so so they are bestowing their patronage to some of 
what is now considered at least the uh, western the western ideas of some of the greatest artists um, ever which include Michelangelo Donatello Botticelli and even Leonardo da Vinci which Whoa. is three out of the four Ninja Turtles so you know that they're they're in big business <laughs> and what about Raphael was Raphael Ra- one of them I believe Raphael isn't based in Florence I think he's more towards Rome um, okay. But I'm not sure if that might be wrong. Damn it, uh, but Raphael. Yeah, I don't believe that they ever did. Um, they did patronise um, Raphael, so not quite. I thought you were um, going to say they... that they never actually uh, got together and formed a uh, crime-fighting turtle quadruple duo. Well, you know, it's history. We don't know. They might have. <laughs> Potentially. That'd be great, though, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Like a like a Ninja Turtle version, but it's actually the artists themselves running around <laughs> uh, Renaissance Italy, like solving crimes and eating yeah. pizza, which. Yeah, they could have tomatoes by then, so possibly eating pizza. No, no, yeah, yeah. Pizza was uh, around before then. I did a whole quiz on it. That's how oh, boring well. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, quiz about pizza sounds kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, so they were huge. The Medici's in particular were um, really big fans of art and really wanted to um, help art flourish within their city. But they didn't just stop at art. They also um, patronised uh, scientists, including, this is a bit later, but they um, Galileo got a lot of his funding from the Medicis, uh, much really? later Medici in about the 16th century. Um, but they would have been doing similar, uh, less probably less famous scientists back in Cosimo's day. Um, and they also would be funding uh, the construction of cathedrals and of churches. I guess to garner a bit of friendliness <laughs> from the church, and you know, and it's kind of this, but also to ensure like that they get into heaven. Maybe I don't know. Back then, people were much more devout. It's an important. It's an important. It's an important part. Yeah. So it's so it's so yeah. So th- and it's it's an interesting thing to look at because although you could see this kind of philanthropic donations as a very positive thing, and it kind of was a positive thing, but you can kind of see it in a slightly more pessimistic view that really this kind of um, philanthropy is there to justify their own wealth because sure. really they are it's a huge wealth inequality um, that the Medici's have and these wealthy families have and they kind of use these very small donations in the grand scheme of things to legitimize the amount of money they they've given which is actually you know what happens nowadays I, I was mean gonna say yeah philanthropy sounds great and seems really cool but really it just gives the rich uh, an excuse to have all that money and gives the, um, the it's kind of a smokescreen to the amount of wealth they actually control because even um, the medicis who were huge proponents of art would maybe give six percent of their wealth over to donating to art so it's not a lot and a bit more to other things but it is kind of there i mean it's there to give them status and prestige but also just to legitimise this massive wealth inequality, which yeah, you know, we could dive into now, but is essentially what happens nowadays as well. So absolutely, it does. Yeah, yeah. So capitalism really at work. Yeah. So wait, is the Duomo a uh, a Medici build? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. So that's so that's one of the the sort of grand beacons of Medici of Medici power. Um, so yeah, so I think yeah, they would have been very interested in making sure that. Uh, even Catholicism has their almost stamp of approval, has their name, you know, Catholicism brought to you by the Medicis, I suppose you could put it. Um, <laughs> yeah, with that, their little TM in the corner, Catholicism and then Medici in the little corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is the start of capitalism, so I assume they want to look after their assets and their their company name. Um, yeah, so it's, it's well, that's what they are, aren't they? Ever. They're like a brand. 
the Medici brand. Actually, when I went to Florence, I'm sure you've been as well, haven't you? Yes, I have. I remember on most, not most buildings, but on lots of buildings, you could see the um, the what is it? Seven is it seven red circles on a five? Was it or five? Seven. Yeah, yeah. Five it's, it, on on a on a sort of golden background. These red orbs. Or these orbs red orbs, or... and they're everywhere. They're literally yes. all over the place. And that's just their brand. They were like, you know, influencers back in the day. <laughs> Basically, yeah, they, yeah. It was, it was, and it's an important brand to to hold because essentially they hold they held this position of kind of supreme power in Florence. It's basically a plutocracy, which is oh, just a okay. government run by the rich, which it kind of was. So although it's technically referred to as the Florentine Republic, and it was the same in Venice because the Venetian Republic, they're not really that republic at all. It is essentially a a state governed by the wealthy. And although there is this kind of idea of a government, they are completely controlled by these families who are a bit like a mafia really i mean sure, it's okay. you kind of hit the nail on the head there you could really see them as a as a as kind of mafia but none of a lot of their actions wouldn't be considered illegal because they're so in power they can they control the judges they control the courts they control everything they control the laws so are you saying to me that the uh, the mafias of today would just like if they were in a different time would just be another italian banking family Yes, sure. I'm saying, that. <laughs> but the difference is the ma- the mafias of today, or perhaps of like the last century, they were, you know, they were they were on the run from the police a lot of the time. You know, the governments of the time were against them in theory, although they may have been underhandedly paid by um, by these mafia dons. At this time, it it wasn't hidden at all. It was very obvious. It in was fact, blatant. Actually, the- yeah. Yeah, it was really it was it was there for all to see, including actually there's a great quote by Pope Pius II, who uh, visited Florence um, when Cosimo de' Medici was in power, and there's this great quote that I think sums up the kind of all-consuming power the Medici's had at this time, and it goes, "Cosimo was considered the arbiter of war and peace, the regulator of law, less a citizen than the master of his city." Political councils were held in his home. The magistrates he chose were elected. He was a king in all but name and legal status. And then later he goes on to say, some asserted that his tyranny was intolerable. So pretty obvious how the rest of the world saw the Medicis. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the Pope's just a bit jealous there. Yeah. Because surely he would want that kind kind of power. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the way I mean, the way he describes the Medicis is essentially how he you would describe the Pope in Rome, uh, you know, the arbiter of war and peace, regulator of the law, less a citizen than the master of a city. That's, yeah. that's what the Pope is as well. So probably a bit jealous he wasn't that for all of Italy, but just his little segment of it, um, whereas the Medici's held power and weren't, you know, I mean, they were Catholic, but they weren't a representation of his church. So not from his party kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so Cosimo Medici, he has a son called Piero and then his son, uh, Cosimo's grandson is Lorenzo de Medici, who would go on to be called Lorenzo the Magnificent, Ooh. and it's uh, it's this Medici who we'll be focusing on today. Because after all this time, after all this consolidation of power, the Medici's they unsurprisingly had accumulated a number of powerful political enemies. Big surprise there, uh, yeah, because <laughs> there always are. Whoever's whoever's at the top, everyone else below them wants to knock them off their. Throne. The only way from the top is down, isn't it? That's what they say. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, and a number of these, and so this is in 
later in the uh, 15th century, around about 1478, um, there were a group of nobles and other wealthy families who decided to come together and form a conspiracy to assassinate uh, Lorenzo and his brother Giuliano um, and overthrow the Medici's in Florence. And it was going to be, it would be known, I don't know if it was known at the time, but it's certainly known to us as the Patsy Conspiracy. Oh, I do love a conspiracy. This is going to be good. So the this Patsy conspiracy um, had quite a few key players involved. Um, the and we'll, I'll talk through some of them, not all of them. There's kind of a, it's kind of a big sort of network, but there were some key players we should mention. Um, the first and most critically are the Patsy family, for which the conspiracy is named. And these are a rival Florentine banking family who for about the last century have kind of been eclipsed by the Medicis and are becoming deeply jealous of the Medici power and influence and money and everything. You know, the Medicis are these glorious princes of Florence, whereas the Patsy family are kind of pushed to the side as this lesser family who aren't as important. So they're not like um, anti what the Medici are doing. They just want to do it themselves. Yeah, kind of. It's yeah. I, I think a lot of this is driven by jealousy. Um, however, the Medici's have kind of come uh, up against the papacy and are kind of not on the papacy's best terms. Whereas uh, the Patsy family are, and they're kind of aligning themselves more with a stronger loyalty to the Pope, either as opportunistic because they see the Medici's are now uh, in a mild opposition to the Pope, or because they are. They believe they may be more Catholic, and actually, they are less of a fan of these newer ideas that are flowing with the Renaissance. Oh, so yeah, it's okay. kind of, you know it could it could be either way. It's most likely going to be jealousy, as all things are. Um, they always come down to greed and a desire for power. Um, not that you know the Medici's weren't greedy and and had a desire for power. They just were currently in power at the time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But the so the Pazzi family, uh, there's two main players. There's Jacopo de Pazzi, who's the head of the family, and then his nephew Francesco de Pazzi, um, who's kind of the main driving force behind the plot, um, and okay. is the one kind of uh, bringing together these other plotters to. And they're hoping to really supplant the Medici's. They want to become the new top banking family, the top influential family um, in Florence after this sort of assassination coup. God, they're ambitious, aren't they? very ambitious so the uh another um conspirator uh probably the second most important conspirator is a man named giolamo riario and this guy okay. is actually nephew to the pope pope sixtus the fourth um he actually might have been his son as well um but officially as he well was his nephew oh i see right yeah not as <laughs> sorry not as, <laughs> not as well yeah not not in a weird way as in in sorry instead of he actually may have been his son um, okay. but officially <laughs> He was Pope Sixtus IV's um, nephew. And he had actually already been um, kind of involved in a tussle between the Pope and the Medicis. Um, because a few years earlier, the Pope was looking to expand his power in northern Italy and was actually looking to buy uh, the small town of Imola from the Duke of Milan. Because apparently you could just buy what? towns back then. Yeah, yeah, that's, really? just a, that's just a thing. He was just like, do. oh, do you need Imola? Because like, it's like Monopoly. <laughs> We really like it, yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I mean, I suppose it probably happens quite. A, it might happens kind of a lot. It's it's kind of a. It might have been a very important, and it's kind of a foothold for the pope for the pope in um, northern okay. Italy. Um, oh, of course, because he's, he's trying to like influence the north he's of Italy to where Florence out his, is. Yeah, his influence. So he decides to try and buy this town of Imola, and Lorenzo 
um, tries to thwart him. Lorenzo offers to buy Emola as well, and he offers a uh, hundred thousand florins, which today's money is about fourteen million dollars, which doesn't even sound that much to buy a town. No, I guess. Well, no, I guess not. I think it's quite a small town. Um, where and then the Pope counteroffers with forty thousand ducats, um, which is actually only about five point six million dollars. Um, so a That's lower not a very offer, good counteroffer. Well, he also includes um, Riario himself, his nephew. Um, he offers Riario's hand in marriage to the Duke's illegitimate, illegitimate daughter, Caterina Sforza, which if you played the Assassin's Creed games, you will recognise. Yeah, she's in um, Forley, isn't she? She isn't is. Right? So she's... So yeah, so um, Forley is and one of the other towns um, around there, also under the control of the Duke of Milan. Um, but Caterina Sforza is—it's—it's it's a kind of an interesting detail here because it's where there's a bit of a departure in from history from the games, or I suppose where the games departed from history, because <laughs> Caterina Sforza is seen kind of she's an ally to Etsy Arditor, who's a made-up character, who's the protagonist of the games. Um, but that wouldn't quite make sense because the you as Ed as Ezio are a friend of the Medici's, whereas Caterina Sforza ends up married to one of the Medici one of the Patsy conspirators. So it, it, there's a weird really? little disconnect there. So in order to make her a friend of um, Ezio in the games, they actually cut out Riario entirely. So he's not oh, in the Oh, do they? The I was going to say, yeah. that didn't ring a bell. That's yeah, he's the He's the only conspirator who... And he's one of the main conspirators. He's very important. Uh, but yeah, he's kind of ignored just because I guess they wanted to have well, this you're... new character, Katarina Sforza, who is a very interesting character. Um, she's a very forceful, very powerful woman at the time. She rules quite a bit on her own. Um, and so she's really interesting character and a great character to bring into the games. But yeah, she yeah. is offered um, in marriage, and the Duke of Milan accepts the Pope's offer and sells Imola to uh, the Pope, and uh, Riario becomes the Signori of Imola, which is basically like Lord. So it's the difference. Signoria okay. is like the, the the government of somewhere, whereas the Signori is a single person who is the Lord. Of That's Imola. got to really piss off the Medici's. Yeah, it's there. Yeah, so the Pope is installing his nephew, his man, as the lord of a very nearby town, um, and and Lorenzo tried to stop this and failed. And this is perhaps where the breaking down of the relationship between the Medici's and the, it's and like the Pope a really war. starts. Yeah. It is. It is. And in fact, after this, um, the Pope then shifts their kind of business affairs, their their revenue management from the Medici's to the the Patsy. So anything they're doing Whoa. in Florence beforehand would have been handled by the Medici's. They would have had an account with the Medici Bank. It, they've All that money coming from the Pope, which would be a huge account, essentially, has been now shifted over to the Patsy. So there's a, you can really start to see the breakdown in the relationship. Yeah, wow. Okay. So, yeah, so, that, so that's Riario. And actually, the conspirators' plan, um, after their assassination and coup, they hope to install Riario, actually, as the Signori of Florence. So they would do away with this not really, oh, really? democratic government that's kind of... But it would it would stop being a plutocracy. It would stop being governed by the rich and would be governed by a single lord who would be loyal to the Pope. Um, and so it is... So basically, of, and so that's a, a puppet state. It's meant to be like a puppet state for the people. Yeah, a puppet states. state. I see. So it's, okay. And it's interesting because the Patsy aren't planning on taking absolute power. They just want to be the banking family. They want to be the rich, wealthy family facilitating Ugh. the Pope's interests. Whereas the plan is for Riario to actually take control of Florence, which might actually indicate where this idea came from. It might not have come from the Patsy at all. 
it may have came from the Pope himself. And actually, it may have been a plan that there, and you know, because it's it, it really would be the Pope who would benefit hugely from this because this state would then be really under his control um, when he installs his, his nephew as, as Lord of Florence. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. I don't think that's a big stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So... The other um, conspirators, uh, the other, the third kind of big conspirator is a man named Francesco Salviati. And the Salviati are another kind of banking family uh, in Florence, um, another sort of uh, lesser family to the Medicis. But Francesco Salviati is um, actually a blood relative to the Pope and is very close to the Pope and actually was close to the Pope before he became Pope, um, which benefited him really well because the Pope named him Archbishop of Pisa and Pisa is quite close to Florence so he's oh. again a kind of installing his own man very close to Florence interesting uh, just a quick note there on Pisa if you ever want to visit Florence and do it on the cheap like I did uh, Ryanair flights go to Pisa and you can get like a like a uh, a coach that goes straight to Florence it's like a 20 minute ride so it's really close and you also get wow. to see the Leaning Tower of Pisa as well so it's yeah, worth it. Yeah. Pisa anyway, is also I think, a, 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 very, a very nice place to visit as well. I mean, I think oh, it yeah, is, it's, it is. <laughs> a, it's a very religious, smaller town. It was at one time, I think, a vague rival of Florence. But whereas Pisa stayed as this kind of home for um, uh, religion, this kind of base of religion, because that's where that's where the Archbishop of Pisa, very important position, was based, obviously. Um, whereas Florence extended itself to become this grand merchant city. Um, sure. But what's interesting is actually Lorenzo disagrees with the Pope's appointment and actually refuses to allow um, Salviati to become to kind of officially become the Archbishop of Pisa because because Pisa is under the influence of Florence he would kind of become a vague Archbishop of Florence as well but Lorenzo essentially says no and rejects it so Salviati will be deeply annoyed that he's been given this power by the Pope and been rejected by this would be king of um of Florence. that's so, big yeah it's like this yeah. cold so he, it feels like there's like a sort of cold war going on between the two between the papacy and the medicis like there's things yeah. happening on the periphery there's this buying of this town riario trying to get in with the patsy like it's all it's all very uh, I, I hate to say it but it's very cloak and dagger <laughs> it's very cloak up, and dagger. up to yeah, this point anyway it's very underhanded well at the moment it's just cloak i'd say because it's all very shifting alliances putting people in place undercutting people's business opportunities shift it's a lot of money at the moment um yeah with the with the you know the buying of Amolo and the shifting of the papal business affairs to the patsy yeah there are uh there are a bunch of other lesser conspirators um that i won't mention there are the only ones i'll, I'll also mention now is a man named bernardo bandini barancelli which is a great name. Wow. Yeah, um, that's very Italian. <laughs> very Italian. Uh, he's just another merchant um, that's very closely allied with the Patsy family. Um, and then there are two uh, priests who are also uh, very much involved. Um, one called Stefano de Bagnone and Antonio Maffei. So these two priests are quite heavily involved as well. Um, okay. And then there are a number of other um, lesser conspirators um, who are involved. But uh, these are kind of the main players. Okay. Baroncelli. Interesting. Baroncelli, yeah. Remember his name. He'll come up later. He's he's an interesting character. Oh, will he? Okay. Uh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's only why I mention them, is because they come up later in the story. Um, sure. So the attack itself, the conspirators' plan, they had, there's a couple, there's hints that they kind of planned some other um, attacks, but uh, keep postponing, waiting for the right time. 
but the time they choose to be the right time is actually on the 26th of April, 1478, during Easter Mass. So they certainly picked a time to really? do it. Really? Oh, God. Um, and they plan to attack uh, Lorenzo de' Medici and his brother Giolano at the Duomo, at the Florentine Cathedral. What? The, the, wait, hang on. The Duomo which the Medicis have built? Yes. Didn't they yes. Didn't they pa- patronise it? Oh, my God. Yes. That's such a That's, statement attack. That is very interesting. That is actually, yeah. Because the I guess that cathedral is a is the epitome of Medici control over what they would assume should be papal controlled yeah buildings exactly. or anything you know it's it's a real it's a real show of Medici power that should Shit. be under the control of the papacy and also so they to do s- it on Easter where like most of Florence will be in that cathedral or anyone who matters I guess uh, in that Absolutely. time not, not that I had anything wrong with that <laughs> um, but yeah no <laughs> that's mad like that's such a sort of that's like Sicari level like uh, publicity. You know? They want to send a statement. Well, it's it's not just an assassination. This is a coup they're planning. They want to overthrow the Medici's, and it has to start with the assassination of uh, Lorenzo and obviously his brother, because his brother would take over. Um, yeah. So they both definitely need to kill, kill these two. But it's not just a quick assassination. They want to take over the city, so they want sure. to send a statement. And yeah, like you say, a crowd of ten thousand citizens had gathered for the event, and this is when they choose to strike. Crikey. So, okay. On the day, Lorenzo de' Medici and his brother Giuliano are at the church. Uh, Lorenzo is towards the front by the altar, and Giuliano is more towards the door. Um, and at some sort of signal, the conspirators leap out with knives in hand. Giuliano is attacked first, and within thirty seconds, he is stabbed nineteen times Ooh. by Francesco de Pazzi and Bernardo Bandini Baroncelli told you he'd oh. come back oh god okay. um, and in fact they they're so aggressive that baroncelli actually accidentally stabs himself slightly they're so aggressive really he's horrific it's a horrific attack it's no you know quick hidden blade to the to the heart or something they leap out and butcher giuliano blooming nora poor man lorenzo who's towards the front he is actually accosted by those two priests i mentioned um, but there, he actually fights them off and is able to save himself. He does get slightly wounded, but really? it isn't mortal, and he is able to escape to a side room of the of the cathedral and is protected. May I ask, um, the two priests uh, were they conducting the service? No, I don't believe so. So they okay. would have been they were just sort of um, lowly priests. Um, just but they're using for... the same. They're using the same tactics that Assassin's Creed one. Um, well, not just Assassin's Creed actually. The Nazari used um, exactly. from the first game. They, Except they, they are actually as, monks. Actually, yeah, the legitimate. <laughs> they're like legitimately monks. But that's even worse because mm. they've taken holy orders. What's interesting is actually um, they weren't supposed to originally. They weren't supposed to be the ones to be attacking Lorenzo. The plan was they had hired a professional hitman in air quotations, um, <laughs> named Giovanni Battista da Montesecco. And this guy actually backs out at the last moment, possibly because he uh, was worried that, you know, he can't strike someone in a church. He would go to hell. It'd be sacrilege. Um, so instead, these two priests, who are apparently less scrupulous and absolutely fine murdering someone in a church, they take over. And this is perhaps where they, where the biggest mistake comes, because these priests aren't good fighters so they switched from this professional hitman to two priests just holding daggers and while you might think that they could get away with it lorenzo fights them off and survives wow well good for him um i was just thinking actually just how you know how in obviously the media today you see a lot of islamic 
um, extremists, if you like, over the our whole life basically has been about there's lots of terrorism, you know, in our yes. in our thing. But actually, it's interesting to hear about Christian christian extremists in europe attacking 100%. in a cathedral you know it's so interesting i mean i know in america you get you know lots of uh shootings by white extremists it's kind of different those are here, those, those are people on the fringe these are yeah um, these guys are wealthy family like the the patriarchs of wealthy families priests uh merchants you know these are high up people like even you know even yeah terrorists nowadays part of the islamic step these aren't high up people they are very extreme uh, examples these guys aren't on the extremities at all these are no. pillar possibly well i mean given they did this possibly not but in theory pillars of the community and important yeah. people of their day who were just pulling out knives and stabbing people in the middle of a church it's bloody insane yeah it's, it really oh. is Okay, so Lorenzo escapes, did you say? Le- Lorenzo escapes and is safe inside the church and actually protected by some of his followers. Meanwhile, across town, uh, Salviati is attempting to seize control of the Signoria, so the other government body. So although they are uh, kind of maybe puppets of the Medicis, it's an important uh, image to be able to take over the Signoria. Yeah, However, symbol. he doesn't... Um, he makes a bit of a mistake, and actually, the Gonfalonieri, who is the head of the Signoria, um, is a deep Medici supporter, and he actually locks Salviati in a room and completely disables him. What? Yeah. Wait, wait, just... wait, 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 wait. So, <laughs> how? Did... <laughs> wait. So, uh, just let me get this so right. Salviati the Archbishop of Pisa just, just yes. storms into the Signoria to try and take it over. Well, perhaps so, what does he do? Stormy. Stumble into a cupboard? <laughs> Well, it's yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, there's there's not too much description of exactly how it happened, but they, all the sources are clear that the Gonfalonieri, who we don't have a name of, which is really annoying, because he seems like a great guy. Um, yeah, yeah. He just kind of just traps the the um, the conspirators. So Salviati probably would have come in with some soldiers or some with some fighters to help him, um, yeah. but they're trapped inside uh, the Palazzo <laughs> Vecchio, which is the seat of power and where sure. the Signoria would have been, um, and yeah, complete and completely disable him. What an idiot. That is yeah, so funny. Yeah. Okay. And it's really at this point where the conspiracy starts to fall apart massively. So they haven't killed Lorenzo and they haven't taken over the Signoria, which are the two re- they're the two keys to power that they need to enact their coup. And okay. this is where things really This is not going well. Them. This, really? is, this, okay. this, this, is, this is the beginning of the end of the conspiracy. You um, know what? It, it feels like... You remember when um, in Gustav's, uh, Gustav's murder... You know, they shoot the king and then everything goes wrong. This feels like you're about to tell me it's going to happen in a similar way. It's very similar. I mean, what they do is they shoot and miss. I mean, like Gustav, I mean, they don't miss him, but he doesn't die. Yeah. And they try to kill Lorenzo and he doesn't die. And I suppose, I suppose without that kind of um, instant moment and that clear win, people are far more willing to... And because, you know, the people are there, um, they'll, they'll pick who they love, but they also will pick the winner. And it's clear that the conspirators aren't winning at this point because they haven't taken over the Signoria and they haven't killed Lorenzo. So the Medicis sure. are still in full power um, uh, while they're, these they're maniacs not... are running around stabbing people. Yeah. So, like I said, this is where things start to go really wrong. Archbishop Salviati is actually then captured, killed, and then hanged or hung because he's dead. Not entirely sure which way around it is if he's already dead. <laughs> I think hanged. I think it's still hanged. Still hanged. Oh, maybe it's still, not. Yeah. I don't know. 
It's difficult to That's say. That's a grisly thing. Yeah. It is a bit of a grisly thing to discuss, yeah. But uh, either way, so he's hanged um, from the Palazzo Vecchia, which is the seat of government, which is the, uh, if you've been to Florence, you'd recognise it. It's the big, imposing sort of town hall building. And he's hung while he's still wearing his archbishop robes, which will come back to uh, bite the Medicis later. Yeah. Um, But with that, you can really start, and the people start seeing um, these conspirators as the villains and now know who to side with. So the conspirators really underestimate the people's love for the Medici and the people absolutely turn on the conspirators and start rounding up all the conspirators they can find and they know that the main conspirators are the Patsy. I mean, if there's one thing, you know, making a big show of it at the cathedral, suddenly everyone knows who you are, knows who the enemy is. And presumably um, it would quickly get out there that if there's been any intelligence from the Medici side knowing who these conspirators are, that's quickly disseminated to soldiers and then to the people who then go on a bit of a rampage and start rounding up all the conspirators they can find and beating them to death so all of florence rallies behind their their princes quote-unquote princes um around the medicis to protect them against these now villains and it is very like uh, gustav as you said because it is the people supporting their uh, their ruler um, to the point where they will cast out these villainous traitors. You know what? I was just thinking about it. Like in terms of like as a city, Florence would have been walled back then. In terms of like it would have been, you know, it wouldn't have been an open city, which means that in terms of it's too small to get out of. It's not like you're, you know, you, if this marks up, there's nowhere to run because everyone knows the Patsy. They know where they live, I presume, and like they know where they're where to find them, and you know. You know, it's like a it's like a tinderbox waiting to go off because they know everything. It's not like you know what I mean. It's not like an invading force from say another country where you couldn't yeah. just and reinvade. You couldn't like invade back. You know, it's in mm. the same city. So it's uh, this is it's not in going the same city well. and now suddenly full of enemies to you. Yeah. I mean, they were hoping to kill the Medici and then suddenly they would be surrounded by their loyal followers, the yeah. city that they had just claimed. Now suddenly they're surrounded by people who are out for blood and are looking to purge their city of these conspirators. So like you say, five conspirators, or five of the main conspirators, as well as a number of other um, people involved, are caught almost immediately and are hanged alongside Salviati um, from the top of the Palazzo Vecchio, um, which includes Francesco de Pazzi um, and a number of the other... um, I believe the priests are also hung there as well. Okay. So immediately they can st- they find some people and butcher them. Some people are able to escape for a time, including Jacobo de Pazzi, who's the, uh, the the patriarch of the Pazzi family. He does manage to get away, but is eventually caught and brought back. And he is an awful time. He, well, supposedly, he is to- first tortured, um, I guess, to find out information or just because it's a bloodthirsty crowd. Um, he is then hanged from the Plaza Vecchio next to the others, but then he is cut down and buried um, at one of the Basilica in Florence. Seems like okay. Seems like he's got yeah. away with it. But then he's he's then dug up again. I mean, he's dead at this point, so he's not getting hurt, but, you know, oh, still not great. Um, so he's dug up and thrown into a ditch. Then he's dragged through the streets and propped up um, at the door of the Palazzo Pazzi, so their um, uh, formal home within Florence, where his rotting head is mockingly used as a door knocker. And then from there, he is dragged and thrown in the Arno River, um, the river running through Florence. Uh, But it's not even done there. Then children fish him out, beat him um, when he's hung from a willow tree, and then throw him back in the river. And and at that point, he... 
rests not really rests i mean he's now just floating down a river so i mean that really shows the visceral hate that people had for the patsy at this moment yeah and then from there they purge their city of anything related to the patsy so as you were saying before you know florence nowadays you see the medici uh crest everywhere you won't see the the patsy crest probably anywhere because really? they fucking struck them from the records they were seen as these traitors the to the city oh, yeah so they they are like i hadn't actually heard of them their history yeah exactly. i'd never heard no. of them apart from from the game i guess but i didn't know that was no, real i thought that was made up no you know. no i mean you know there's other families that you also wouldn't have heard because they're not as big the medicis are the big family in florence that you would have yeah, heard yeah, of. yeah yeah but no the patsy in particular are almost stricken from the record they're there and actually, lots of uh, sort of more distant members of the family um, will then move away and change their names. So the Patsy name kind oh, of dies wow. out. It, I think they have a bit of a resurgence a few hundred years later, but they're kind of still seen as these, and they become villainized over history. They'll be um, they'll be talked about in plays um, and written about as these enemies of Florence. Wow. So yeah. So that's proper tainted up. name. Yeah. My lord. Proper okay. tainted. So um, Bernardo Bandini Baroncelli um, also managed to escape. He actually makes it all the way to Constantinople. So wow. you think he's free and clear, but he's Good arrested um, by the Sultan in Constantinople and sent no. back to Florence. So obviously Florence had good trade and a good arrangement with um, the Sultan. So he's brought back in chains and wearing um, Turkish clothing. And what's great is you, we can actually see kind of what he's looked like because, and we'll include this in the Instagram. It's one of my favorite things we'll be including in the Instagram photos. But there is a sketch done by Leonardo da Vinci um, no. of Bernardo Bandini Bancelli um, being hanged. No, he's not hanged at the Palazzo Vecchio. He's hanged at uh, one of the Florentine barracks. Um, but it is this haunting sketch that Leonardo does. And you can see, I mean, it's 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 a proper creepy drawing. What I think this is, is a quick sketch that he's done at the time so that he could then later go back and do a painting of, which makes this really interesting because it makes it more probably photographic or more like a courtroom sketch. He's not yeah. adding any artistic license to it because this is just so for his memory. So if he wanted to go back and create a painting, possibly he did create a painting and we've just never seen it. It may have been lost yeah, time. It could easily have been painted. So instead, we have this little sketch that he does. So, you know, Leonardo wanted to know exactly what he looked like. So I kind of like this because it's it's it's, yeah, it's really it's... clear. This is exactly how it looked like. It's not like last week we were looking at all those paintings of Charlotte Corday and of Murat. And those are designed in a way to not be correct and to kind of show someone in a good light or someone in a bad light. You know, there's a there's a way they paint to... There's a bias behind every painting. But I yeah. don't think there's much of a bias in this because it almost probably wasn't for anyone other than Leonardo himself so that he could refer back. It is. And what's also interesting is where da Vinci's uh, allegiance lies because, of course, he is in the Medici camp, but he's clearly painting this or sketching it as, I mean, out of sympathy? I don't think... Well, I don't know. I don't know. I can't pretend to he know what Leonardo's thinking. He may just wanted to record uh, an important event. I mean, you know, yeah, he, he was living in Florence at this time. This would be a hugely important event. Isn't that um, mad? For every Florentine. It's but like it's the one sketch we have of this hanging comes from Leonardo da Vinci himself. Like, I think exactly. that's so cool. Uh, you're in for a treat, guys, when you see it on the Instagram. It's a yeah, really yeah. haunting um, piece. It's, it yeah. is. Yeah, it is. It's, it's scary. In a way that I can't think of many other Leonardo da Vinci's paintings are scary 
No. But I guess it's um, that kind of just feeling that this is actually what you're looking at a real thing. You're not looking at an artist's impression of something. You're yeah. looking, it's much more like a photograph. And you know what? I was just thinking how we were talking about them as mafia before. This now feels so mafioso because, you know, yes. you've got like a vendetta against the other rival family who, and they mm. just get hunted down. You know exactly, exactly. And so the the final member of the conspiracy conspiracy, other than the Pope, who obviously gets away, um, but uh, Riario, he is actually only the only member directly involved in the conspiracy who does get away. So he flees back to Rome and is obviously protected by the Pope and by the papacy. Sure. Um, but he does go on to try and um, promote several further plots against the Medici, all of them unsuccessful. Um, and he himself is then uh, assassinated in a conspiracy by members of the Orsi family, supposedly over a financial dispute. So he doesn't okay. go on to be much. Doesn't end up uh, Signori as Florence as he had hoped. Um, presumably he stays Signori of Imola. Um, that doesn't change too much. Um, so yeah, he kind of gets away with it. But he kind of is, of all the conspirators, he is this outside force. He represents the Pope. He is this uh, foreign factor um, involved and therefore has the most protection whereas all the other members are florentines they are and they are at the mercy of the florentine people and yeah yeah are all killed it's like the riario has got like diplomatic immunity because he's from a different it is country. yes yeah. it's i mean i mean they i mean the there's there's probably a i mean well the people did execute an archbishop but perhaps the medicis would be less concerned i mean they sent i believe it is a member of the medici family who was sent to uh, Constantinople to bring back Baroncelli, but yeah. they probably wouldn't send anyone to. You know, they'd go all the way to Constantinople to bring someone back, but they can't send anyone to Rome because they don't have the influence there. Yeah, yeah. Wow, what a story! This is like so brutal, and it's gone so wrong. <laughs> you know, it's it's gone so wrong. There's actually, and there's one more thing I wanted to wanted to mention. Um, because at this time there is something that I found really interesting is the, the fact that the the people rose up to defend um, their 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 leaders, their, the Medici ruling family, despite the fact that the Medici were this absolute, possibly tyrannical, um, very much like um, uh, Gustav, enlightened despots, really. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Enlightened's a bit of a weird term because we're not in the age of enlightenment, but they are more forward-thinking tyrants, They're just more philanthropic, really, people. aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's, it, but it, what it's interesting is the fact that they, they did inspire love from their people, sure. and there was another very interesting person living at this time, um, Niccolo Machiavelli, and it's in oh. his book where he posits, "Is it better to be feared or loved?" And I and I double checked. He was living in Florence at this time. He would have been ten years old when this happened. So he got first-hand experience of what the power you can have if you are wow. loved by your people. So, you know, because there's all for being feared, but if the Medicis had been feared by their people, the people would have almost risen up to, they would have joined, they may have joined side with the Patsies or just stayed out of it. And then the Patsies could have, could have the Patsy conspiracy could have succeeded. But wow, because yeah. there was that love of the people, they they survived. So it's clear, I mean... We've, it's only two examples, but from Gustav and from here, you can really see the benefit of having your people really love you because yeah. it just means anyone who steps against you is a villain in the public's eyes. Um, and so you need a lot of power and a lot of backing to be able to go against the will of the people. And clearly the, the, the Patsy conspiracy did not have that. Yeah, quite. Well, it's a hell of a tale. Yes. That's for sure. 
So yes, that is our assassination tale, our final assassination tale. That was a really fascinating episode. I, I'm really gonna like look into the research again because that was really cool. Really enjoyed it. Or just play the video game again. Well, that's kind of what I meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll now move into the closer look where we've actually uh, taken a small element of, it, of this, the the fact that it was a murder in the church or an attempted murder in the church. Um, and we've looked at some other assassinations in churches throughout time. So let's move to the closer look. So, Will, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Let's give your voice a break. This week, I chose to look into the murder, or sorry, the assassination of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett. So, yeah, uh, this happened in 1170 on the 29th of December uh, and was the most high profile uh, religious figure to be killed, especially not like, you know, burnt at the stake by sort of some sort of authority this is like a butchering mm. of someone um right. it, that's ever taken place in, in the country i'd say well, that might sound a bit hyperbolic but i don't think i am because when it's happening in the, in the 1170s you're at the height of uh the crusading period right mm. in the high middle ages and so like religious figures have never been more important to you know in the public eye you know people the church's really control care. over the country is at, a, is at a pinnacle at this moment. Well, it, that's interesting you say that because there's actually a tussle going on between Henry II, who was king at the time, and the church. So a bit like his like successor all the way down to Henry VIII, six Henrys later. Um, he, you know, or Henry like VIII, the Medici's tussle with the Pope. It's always the same. It's always tussle yeah, with powers, it is. isn't it's it? True. Yeah, it's true. It, absolutely right. Um, Henry VIII trying to sort of, like, well, he does. He destroys uh, Catholicism in in England and starts the Protestant faith. Henry II tries to do not the same thing, but he was along the similar lines. um, A lighter version of it. Yeah, like, exactly, in 1162 through to 1170. Uh, Because basically, the church had lots and lots and lots and lots of retainers who um, held land, and they were, because you're talking about the feudal period, people would pay their, their money to the church, or whoever owned the land. And in this case, if the church owns those land, they actually become the biggest landowners in England at the time, except for the king. So then the king feels like he's in a weird land grab fight with the church. So this is kind of what's going on. That's kind of the context. Now, um, ironically, Henry II appoints Thomas Becket to be his Archbishop of Canterbury. So it's not right. like so he inherited friends. him. Yeah, yeah, they, they were friends, in fact. Um, they were very close. In fact, so close that Henry sent his heir, who actually unfortunately died and never became king, um, to go and study at Beckett's house. So, like, you could not be better mates, right? And at the time, but when the old bishop, Archbishop of Canterbury died, um, Beckett was actually serving as the Chancellor for of the whole country for Henry. So you'd think, best mates, okay, um, this old dude has just died. What better way to like reward my friend who's done so much for me than making him the new Archbishop of Canterbury? And also, it makes sense to do that because two birds with one stone, if you put uh, your best mate in as the Archbishop of Canterbury, you can then take loads of land away from the church and give it to the royals. <laughs> that, that, I think that's what Henry was thinking would happen right thomas had a very very different idea though 
Because whilst he was chancellor, yeah, fine, I'll do whatever you want, Henry. Like, yeah, that's fine, because he's working in the secular authority, right? As soon yes. as he, he gets anointed, he takes his vows very seriously. And he becomes basically the biggest thorn in Henry's side for the duration of his time as archbishop. Uh, so yeah, it's a real backfiring uh, moment, I think, for Henry. Yeah, so it's 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 almost a deeper personal story because unlike the the you know the, the Patsy conspiracy where the Medicis were rivaling the Pope, who were this foreign entity, this is a this is a friendship like gone awry and a, and a real personal war between them. It really is exactly. Um, so this all comes to a head um, a few times actually. There's a couple of run-ins, but basically uh, after. Thomas actually flees the country to get away from Henry and he actually flees to France for a little while. He comes back and um, he goes back to the Arch- to, sorry to Canterbury and he's sitting there, he's in the cathedral and uh, he is uh, trying his best to keep, hold on to the autonomy of the church, right? And at the same time, Henry hears that he's back in Canterbury and he's sitting there and he um, he is meant to have said, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Which is what lots of people will quote to you, probably a couple of years older. You know, like the generation above us love this quote. I don't know why. I, I must, you know, <laughs> but it's not actually correct. It's erroneous, which is so the, always the case when it comes to sayings. What he actually said was much more personal. Um, oh. So what he said was, what miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and brought up in my household who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric? <laughs> wow. Which is just That's amazing so to say. so much shade. It's not, it's not even shade <laughs> on Beckett. It's shade on you, swine, who are fawning over me and doing nothing about this thorn in my side. That's... Yeah. So whilst he's saying this... Four knights hear him say this, the king saying this thing. And those four knights were Reginald Fitzurse, Hugh de Morville, William de Tracy, and Richard Le Breton. And as soon as they hear their king say this, they mount up in full battle gear and ride to Canterbury from Winchester, which is where the, the court was at the time. So not very far, Winchester to Canterbury. Just go around the M25, no. should be fine, you know, as long as the roads stay open. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> so they get there, um, and what their plan is, is to go into the into the cathedral, grab Beckett, and force him to come back to Winchester to answer for his crimes, right? That's basically the plan. Doesn't quite work, because what happens is they get there, at first they think okay no 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 he's definitely going to come with us we're knights of the realm you know so they leave their swords by a tree which i think is really comical it almost sounds like a monty python moment they leave their swords by the tree (laughs) and they hide they hide their armor under their cloaks so then they walk in and they and they find thomas beckett standing there at the altar and they say right thomas you're coming with us you need to come to the king and he goes am i fuck i'm not leaving like I, I'm not coming with you. <laughs> like what I'll authority? You. Yeah, like no this is yeah. this is my house. This is God's house. You are this not is taking my. Me. You you get out of here. Yeah, exactly. So then they they're like, okay, he's not listening. But they've they've been sort of shamed in front of all of these priests. I guess I, that's a bit of speculation. I'm not really sure why. But basically, then they <laughs> they then leave 
to go back to the tree. You can just imagine it. Just hold that thought. We're coming back. Trudging so back. The- <laughs> oh, God. It's going all the way back. Clanking along. Like, I told you, there. we shouldn't have left the swords. We needed the swords. We should have kept the swords. We needed our swords. <laughs> exactly. They grab their swords. They, they start charging towards the front um, doors of the cathedral. And uh, some of the priests see them coming and try and bar the doors. And uh, Beckett says... Don't don't bar the doors. No, we, this is God's house. Like God will protect us, which has a bit of a cynic and an atheist and all the rest of it. it I sort of go, really? Are you sure that's what you want to do? But you know, yeah. that's just. I what mean, happens. if this ended with a lightning strike striking all three knights, that would have been pretty cool. But I imagine nothing really blocks their path as they enter the church. Well, the, well, the, because Beckett said don't. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just... Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is, they come straight at Beckett and they literally just... They call him a traitor, right? And Beckett replies, I am no traitor and I am ready to die. So then they're like, okay, fine. You've just said that you're a traitor. That gives them the sort of excuse they need. And they try and pull him outside of the cathedral. So unlike the priests who attack in the Duomo, they uh, want they don't want to desecrate God's church, especially the, the, the most holy site in the entire country. But mm. uh, Beckett resists. He holds on to the altar so he can't be moved. So they chop him down where he stands. And, wow. and apparently, I'm about to read a quote out here, but I'm pretty sure a priest is involved in the killing. And we get this from really? an eyewitness. Yeah, there's an eyewitness who was a friend of Beckett called Edward Grimm. And this is the, uh, the quote. So, the impious knights suddenly set upon him and shaved off the summit of his crown, which the sacred chrism consecrated to God. Then, with another blow received on the head, he remained firm. But with the third, the stricken martyr bent his knees and elbows, offering himself up as a living sacrifice, saying in a low voice, for the name of Jesus and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. But the third knight inflicted a grave wound on the fallen one. With this blow, his crown, which was large, separated from his head so that the blood turned white from the brain, yet no less did the brain turn red from the blood. It purples the appearance of the church. The fifth, not a knight, but a cleric who had entered with the knights, placed his foot on the neck of the holy priest and precious martyr, and, it is horrible to say, scattered the brains with the blood across the floor, exclaiming to the rest, we can leave this place, knights, he will not get up again. Wow. That's gruesome. It really is. And clearly God did not protect him. No, but he made him a martyr and a saint. So I guess that's kind of how it goes. Oh, it's it's just so brutal. It's just so horrifyingly brutal. And then yeah, so this cleric is also involved. Yeah. So interesting. So there's yeah. a real sort of diff- disagreements within the church um, about how to react to this guy and how to react, how to how to how to act for your king and how to act for your god and how to act for your. This is the thing. It's who do you go for? Do you Archbishop. go for the holy? father or do you go for the king it's just how it goes anyway long story short after this uh, there's a huge outcry and all four knights meet their end in the holy land where they're sent by the pope for penance and um, they all died very quickly and mm. henry henry for his part in it had to um he walked uh, he did a pilgrimage to canterbury and allowed some of the priests there to whip him which sounds a little bit fetishized but it's actually it was a penance <laughs> thing um yeah, at the altar yeah. where beckett was Apparently his blood was still stained on the on the flagstones. Wow! So, so he really regrets his he regrets his action and wants to do penance. Yeah, 
Yeah, or it's a pl- I mean, yes, like, stunt, it, but I don't know. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's it's hard to know whether he felt bad, um, and actually he didn't mean to send those knights to kill him, or yeah. whether once he realised it was done bad and he looked bad, he then tried to backtrack and say, "Oh no, I didn't mean to," and therefore I will I will do my penance. Yeah, and they're sent to the um, you said they're sent to the Holy Land, and they yeah. they die pretty quickly. I wonder yeah. how they died. I wonder if there was some strange assassin sect that uh, hunted down. <laughs> oh, <laughs> one, I really one hope big they were. Circle. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be pretty cool. So yeah, that's the end of my uh, closer look. What did you look into today, Patrick? Well, I have gone uh, much more recent, um, but also another archbishop. So I have looked Ooh. into uh, Oscar Romero, the assassination of Oscar Romero, who was the um, archbishop of El Salvador. Um, during the Cold War. So much more recent. Oscar Romero was a very loved um, man. He was a vocal critic of a lot of the violent activities of both the extreme right-wing government's uh, armed forces as well as the leftist guerrilla fighters. Um, And so El Salvador at this time was in civil war. And this was, you know, against the overarching landscape of the Cold War kind of across the world between um, kind of uh, American capitalists and communists um, in Russia. So that's kind of the backdrop. And uh, Oscar Romero is this kind of vocal, vocal critic of both sides because of their brutality and of their poor treatment of the poor and of the sort of disenfranchised. He was very outspoken um, and he had received multiple threats against his life to which he responded declaring he was ready to sacrifice his life for the redemption and resurrection of El Salvador. So he's kind of already becoming um, this kind of people's hero and he's not... He's he's very um he's against both sides so he's not he's not an, he kind of and you know you could see also neither side is too angry at him but actually he kind of starts incurring the wrath of both sides. Um, oh dear! So in a never a good position to be in. So whereas it's an interesting thing because unlike the previous stories, this guy it, it, this is much more on the world stage and much more public. He was actually nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. Um, and I didn't know this, but to be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, you need lots of people to uh, put you forward. And he was, uh, there was a number of US congressmen and 118 members of British Parliament all put him forward, uh, and wow. as well as some other people. But yeah, so he had a lot of support worldwide. He was really seen as this great man and this really uh, loving man. But obviously he... Um, Push people some of the wrong, rub some people the wrong way, and a hit was put out on him. So on God. the twenty fourth of March, nineteen eighty, while Romero was giving mass, um, so again like um, like the, the the Patsy during a uh, religious service, he was giving mass at the Church of Divine Providence in San Salvador, which is El Salvador's capital. Um, And then in the middle of mass, a lone gunman pulled up outside the church entrance, pulled out a rifle and shot all the way up the aisle, striking Romero in the chest and killing him, which I think is a very evocative image. I mean, it's so... What's interesting is, yeah, the the gunman didn't want to step inside. Similar to um, those Ah. knights in the Beckett story, they didn't want to do the act on consecrated ground. The, the the benefit of modern times, you could use a gun and strike someone from very far away. Um, and then very unlike our two previous stories, the uh, gunman gets back in his car and drives away and isn't caught. 
So it's a really horrific story. And we'll put some images in the um, in the Instagram. And I, would, I do want to put out a warning because uh, one of the images of the event, because obviously cameras were around at this time. So we do have pictures just after the event of Romero on the floor. And it is quite distressing. Um, so if you don't want to look, don't. Um, but it is a, it's a gruesome scene. He's struck in the chest and bleeds out inside the church. Um, and no one is really caught no one is arrested there wow. is suggestions that the the hit may have been put out by a man named major roberto dalbuisson who was a ex-salvadorian soldier who went on to become a very famous politician and who has actually been credited to lots of times being on tv and being asked about certain people and saying you know inflammatory things or possibly uh, incriminating things against people saying oh you know they they are enemies to the state, and then a number of weeks later, that person dying. Ooh, so it's a good okay. it's a good chance that he um, would have been involved in this, and there's hints that it was exactly him and members of his supposed death squad. So these are elite assassins, uh, you know, soldiers who are going out um, stab people, stab people, going <laughs> out to um, kill people who are enemies of the state. So although um, Romero was an enemy to the leftist guerrillas to a certain extent, because he. Um, went against their um, practices as well. He was more of a thorn in the side of the right-wing government and of the military that had such strong control. So it's most likely them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but no one has ever been prosecuted for the assassination or confessed it, and no one knows who the government is. And actually, what's and another thing I'll put in the Instagram post: um, the CIA have there is a released CIA document, which is really cool to see because it's this like real document Ooh. released out. I think they it says actually the bottom approved for release November nineteen ninety three, um, which is. Uh, 13 years after so actually not too long after but they've put out this statement it doesn't indicate anything it is the it's like the sort of first report that would have come through um after the assassination indicating um it says archbishop oscar romero um has was murdered on the 24th of march in the chapel of divine providence hospital in northern san salvador so it is a just a report but it's a really chilling look at a real document that was sent out after this guy's death i bet and there's a lot does... of black tape about it is there lots of black ink? oh yeah, um, yeah it's all redact lots of redacted, redacted information it actually goes on um there's huge chunks redacted you know love to know what's there but it might be more indications of actually the cia probably knew a bit more of and possibly they even name drop um the major uh, yeah. I mentioned earlier but obviously they don't want to protect. They it's did a deal official... or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 not an it's not an official um, uh, prosecution or anything like that. It is just a it is just a statement of what happened, possibly including some ideas about what happened. But that's all been heavily redacted. There's huge chunks of the document that are redacted. And actually, um, there's a kind of list of um, names that would have been associated with the murder, and a lot of them have their name. And then a big paragraph underneath, just all um, black. But you'll see it in the um, uh, in the in the Instagram. So yeah, so pretty pretty gruesome, pretty gruesome murder. And again, there is this kind of uh, reverence for God and people unwilling to take certain steps. Although this person was willing to kill um, Romero, didn't want to step inside the church. Although there's a chance that may have been just clear. There was a clear line of sight. Didn't there's no need to get further in. Um, yeah, possibly maybe risk getting caught. So, but maybe there was a chance they just didn't want to step on. I mean, you know, South American countries, El Salvador in particular, deeply religious. The gunman would have been from El Salvador, most likely. Um, also probably would have been very religious. So it's hard to say exactly because we don't know who shot him. Um, no, it's just a, a tragedy, isn't just, it? 
it's it's a real tragedy and he is kind of seen as a a bit of a martyr um but he was almost already a martyr and he was beloved by his people so i I think in this case in this case uh, unlike the other stories which are kind of battles between rich men trying to grab power this is a sadder story because i don't think there's any indication that romero was power hungry he was just a very nice person trying to protect his people and trying to look out for the innocents in a civil war that was destroying the country so well on that somber note um should we uh, <laughs> we'll let you guys go <laughs> yes so yeah very very nice well i hope you guys have all very much enjoyed uh this series our little um first foyer into podcasting we've certainly enjoyed it a lot um we've talked about all sorts of really cool history stuff i didn't know anything about and i've hope you guys have learned too i hope will you've learned something i know you're doing history for years but uh, no yeah always learning always learning i've loved every minute of it and i'm really looking forward to recording again it's it's going to be good to to get out there yes yeah so we should be back uh hopefully around about six weeks time we'll we'll probably do another six uh episode series we've already got a lot of ideas for new assassinations to cover there's a lot of stuff that we that, i mean that you know as i said before there's always people trying to kill each other no matter where you are in history, and there's always good stories. And there'll um, also be a couple that. of guest episodes as well, hopefully, which we've got in, in the pipe work. But we'll, we'll let you know on our Instagram about that nearer the time. Yes, yes. So uh, keep following us on Instagram. We'll probably put out some extra, some additional posts um, just in the sort of off-season. We can call it an off-season, can't we? That's yeah, of course cool. we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, follow us on there. Um, and then, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify or Google or Apple Podcasts, wherever... Leave us a review, um, subscribe to us, or just tell a friend because it really helps out the show. Yeah, uh, keep listening, guys, and we'll see you very soon. Yes, see you very soon. Bye.